The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Monday, everybody. Lovely to see you all. I'm Steve Sedgwick with Arabile Gamede. You are watching Scorebox, and these are your headlines. So the bulls are back. U.S. equities surge with the S&P 500 rallying to a new high, clearing a record set two years ago. This after rosy consumer confidence data. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis drops his presidential bid and endorses Mr. Trump two days before the New Hampshire primary, leaving Nikki Haley as the former president's only major challenger for the party's nomination. Yes, my endorsement because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackaged form of warmed over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. United Airlines cancels all Boeing 737 MAX 9 flights this week while the FAA recommends carriers inspect and secure door plugs on another 737 model. And hundreds of uh, thousands take to the street for a second week of protests in Germany. That's after a remigration scheme triggers alarm and backlash against the far-right AFD party. Very good to see you. How are you? Very good, thank you. You defrosted a little bit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No problem whatsoever. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. You, you're used to these then, right? I mean, uh, negative... No, what no, was it well, I think we got down to about negative 18, 19 at one point. But to be honest, it, was, it, it wasn't an issue. It was not an issue. Okay, it was well, fair good. enough. Some great but, conversations, though. Thank you very much. I, I think so, actually. I think it was actually a very purposeful uh, Davos. I, I'm a great believer in a lot of the cynicism about the World Economic Forum. I think I've earned my rights to be cynical. I've been After to so many years circa a dozen of them as well. Yeah. And I understand why it gets a really bad rap. And uh, there are certain people who act in a certain way when they go to Davos that, that actually sustain that belief that it's just a big jolly and it's just actually about um, the contacts rather than the context as well. But I thought this meeting was actually was rather good. I have to say it was one of the best ones because I thought we got substantive views on a whole host of key issues, whether it be on sustainability, whether it be on AI, whether it be on interest rates, whether it be on the growth scenario, whether it be on interest rates as well. And I think, um, actually, I think we were privileged on CNBC, Karen and myself and the rest of the team, to get some really interesting foresight on where rates are going. And actually, uh, there was some definitely market moving news on that front, yeah. certainly from the European policymakers, yeah. just pushing back on the prospects of a spring uh, cut. But uh, it could still happen. And I know there are many out there who still think it's going to happen. But we'll discuss that with our guests throughout the show. Uh, in the meantime, we saw a bull market as well we from the S&P. Uh, very interesting to see the Russell 2K. I saw some of the data about that under a vast amount of pressure still, despite the fact that we have... It's still down for the year, though, the Russell 2K. It is indeed. Compared to last year's tear, of course. One thing I, I've just been reading, and, and it was John Authors, a Bloomberg um, contributor, just pointing out that this wasn't just about the Magnificent Seven. Yep. Actually, it was rather broad brush, even if there are big valuation disparities between the, 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 the growth stocks, the Magnificent Seven, yep. and indeed a large number of other stocks in the 500. The truth of the matter is it was actually quite a broad brush rally, despite those disparities. Yep. But so uh, let's, let's unpack those. The right? disparity does exist, though, very much between Europe and the United States. 
States. The performance of European equities last week was underwhelming. I know there's a call for them to go higher at the start of trading today. But very interesting. For instance, the FTSE last week was down 2.1%. Yep. The DAX was down 09 And yet at the same time, we saw the CAC Big big plug on the Nasdaq up 2.3%. Anyway, I've probably stolen your thunder already. So you just <laughs> take it away. No. You go wherever you want, my friend. <laughs> Not entirely, no, but it's a similar sentiment, right? It's the it's the same broad strokes here that we we're speaking about. It was one of those interesting elements. We did focus a little bit more on the tech counters because it is a, a slight disparity overall in a sense. But for the first time this year, yes, it is still early, 13 trading sessions in. We now have all three of the major indices up for the year, actually. The Dow Jones, the S&P, as well as the Nasdaq, managed to gain more than 1% each then to close out last week, Friday. In fact, we saw record closing levels then for both the Dow Jones Industrial as well as the S&P 500. The Nasdaq even hitting a 52-week record then as well. Even the more tech-focused Nasdaq 100, that managed to hit a record high. That went up around 2%. Uh, so that was fairly interesting to uh, note overall. Onto the Treasuries then. These have been rising then, particularly over the past few days. And a little bit of that is because of that pushback then from central bankers saying that perhaps those interest rate hikes aren't going to be as many as some would think. The two years at 4.4, but we're still fairly up on that 10-year, now sitting at 4.1129 at this level. Central bankers pushing back against those market expectations for a shift lower on those interest rates. On to the Asian market today. Well, this has been interesting. The Nikkei had pulled back at some stage last week. Today, we're back on the up, back into uh, record territory. In fact, one and two-thirds of a percent higher, a 34-year high. Now we're anticipating then uh, that the PBOC, or rather the PBOC today, did leave its uh, rates unchanged, should I say, actually. So that was fairly interesting to note. The Hang Seng uh, down now more than 2% on the back of all of that data. Let's remember that real estate uh, shares have actually declined as well. And the Bank of Japan kicking off its two-day meeting. Very quickly here, your opening calls then as well, as we focus then on last week's market, which closed a little bit lower across Europe. We look to be headed a little bit higher today. Here, U.S. futures then as well. We do have some data, of course, coming through this week. We do have preliminary GDP numbers on Thursday, plus that all-important PCE data out of the U.S. That's coming out on Friday. Now, very quickly, Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsbee told our U.S. colleagues it's time for the central bank to start reassessing its rate path outlook. If we continue to make surprising progress faster than was forecast on inflation, then we have to take that into account in determining the level of restrictiveness. We've had a restrictive policy with rates relatively high because we wanted to get inflation back to target, and that's where we'd been missing on our dual mandate. We're making a lot of progress in that front. The inflation rate coming down, and as it does so, then we would clearly be evaluating the, the restrictiveness. Uh, the ECB is set to meet this week amid expectations. The central bank will stay the course and leave rates unchanged. Goldman Sachs maintained its outlook for the first 25 basis point rate cut from the ECB to be in April, with back-to-back -back cuts until the deposit rate hits 2.25% in early 2025. Well, last week in Davos, we spoke to, uh, as you well know, a number of European policymakers about the ECB rate path. Why don't you take a listen? Everything we have seen in recent weeks points in the opposite direction. So I may even foresee no cut at all this year. 
The first quarter 2024 is going to be challenging. Inflation is coming down actually faster than it went up. We now focus more on core and sometimes on uh, services inflation. If I think in nominal terms, obviously they shouldn't be higher than today. And bearing major surprises, we look at the Middle East, our next move will be a cut probably this year. I will not comment on the season. We will stick to our guns. We will stick to what we believe is the right interest rate path to take us to that 2% objective in 2025. We think we can do it, but there are risks out there. Well, what a terrific guest we've got to uh, kick off the week. We've actually got Stephen Whiting, who's the Chief Economist and Chief Investment Strategist at City Global Wealth. Stephen, Good we're very morning. lucky to have you with us. It's because, my pleasure. Thank well, you. A, you're a great guest, and B, you've been doing some great travelling as well. So Indeed. really, I... And you've just come back from Asia, you're doing your European trip now, then you're off back to the States eventually. Um, Just tell us a little bit about what you've learned and what the messaging looks like around the world. Look, a lot of investors in Asia, again, are are looking at this marked contrast between how markets in the United States and China have performed. We're, uh, again, uh, quite optimistic that the world economy did not need an economic collapse. We had one massive shock, one pandemic, one collapse. We didn't need two recessions, right, to ultimately cure our inflation problem. It's holding down parts of the economy now. Manufacturing and trade declines are happening around the world. You know, but these are likely to bottom within the year. Uh, Again, demand is not needed to collapse. Supply chain disruptions, and there are still some. Uh, Again, we're very much a part of this. The stimulus has passed. And this period of slow global growth, slower global growth and slowing employment growth in the United States, we think can pass and lead to a healthier growth period if we take a look, particularly at the next year and beyond. And that's this year's business for investors. Very simple question from me. Um, I come from an era before central bankers refused to allow us to have a recession. Shouldn't we have had a, isn't it a recession cleansing? Isn't it actually cleansing for economies to actually go through an economic downturn without the central banks panicking every two seconds? When there is a true overheating, when again you've had a boom, right? That is the kind of environment that there's really no way around that. What we had, if you take a look at this 2020 through, you know, 2022 period again, was a lot of government stimulus, excess stimulus. But this didn't have a life of its own. It wasn't going to go on each and every year. You take a look at money supply uh, in the United States. It's declined 4% over the past year. Take a look at the 1970s. Uh, It was almost 10% growth for the entire decade. Import prices surging 14% every single year. That's what a sustained inflation that you needed to to knock it down like 1980-82 was. Now, this story with just all of this government spending coming and going, upheaval in supply and demand, Consumer spending going up or down 30% right between goods and services during the pandemic period, that's not the environment we're in any longer, right? So just the mere fact that you have low unemployment and stable prices, well, let's just have a recession because it's fun. No, we don't need to do that. Because it's fun, but because there is excess in the system. Because, and you just, I mean, I talked about monetary policy. You you checked me there by talking about fiscal policy. Mm. The fiscal, I'm sorry, Arabile, but but I just want to pick up what Stephen said. The fiscal policy excesses we have seen from governments around the world have taken us to global levels of debt. I'm not talking about the absolute level Mm. of debt. I'm talking about the global level of debt to GDP that we have never seen, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, 
uh, almost in the history of government. Uh, I mean, for, and, and also it's unsustainable given the fact that the CBO in the United States, for instance, is talking yes. about six to eight percent deficit, no matter who's in the White House for the next couple of years. That, that is not sustainable, sir, for the world's largest economy. Look, the one thing that we want to think about, this is one of those conversations that's really, really long and complicated. Yeah. But back in 2020, when we were spending dramatically more, right, when budget deficits in the U.S. case were twice as large, we had a 0.5% interest rate, a 10-year Treasury yield. Now, we've converted a lot of short-term stimulus into longer-term spending, spending that we have to somehow finance or we essentially are going to rob savings uh, and uh, potential capital investment from other uh, parts of the economy. We all have this crowding out effect over the longer yeah. term. Uh, that's quite severe. But if this is, uh, again, a sovereign debt crisis, no, it's not. It's not a, a Greece issue without control of, of a central bank. Um, it is not, uh, again, a period in which uh, the economy has no ability to grow. There was a lot of restraint in many, many industries. Uh, and if we can get our spending under control in the longer term, we can still have a very healthy right. growth period. Right. That means tweaking it, though, uh, Stephen, is, is a lot more hard work. It takes a little bit longer. Should we expect this situation to actually continue for quite some time as the central bank and even and fiscal policy tries to get its, itself back to those levels? Again, sustainable fiscal policy with our demographics, these sorts of issues. I mean, this is a long-run question that doesn't fit so much in the immediate cyclical backdrop, the up and down of growth and profits this year or next. So if investors think that there's something that's going to drive the stock market or the bond market, you know, they're probably uh, exaggerating a little bit. Uh, and again, you know, I could say that this is all rosy because, for example, medical costs have the upward path that was expected just a few years ago has come down considerably. But no, we're not on a long-term, really sustainable fiscal path. There's some compromises that are going to be made, that, that have to be made. There are issues, like I said, of crowding out private savings that could be used more productively in the economy uh, to invest in than just funding healthcare consumption, for example. But um, this is not the sort of thing, again, that drives an economy quickly into recession uh, just because, hey, we expected one last year. Election risk, any of that at all? Look, the one thing I would say about this is for U.S. domestic activity. If there is going to be a big change in spending, uh, a uh, united government loves to spend money, a divided government puts its wallet away, which, as you say, we should do, right? We may not know that until after election night in November in the U.S. Uh, and again, there's so many combinations of how the House and Senate uh, and the President could turn, whether they're united or divided. That's the key question. And that's not really the business of today. But in the meantime, nothing's going to happen, right? Because it feels as though one doesn't want to upset the cart in, you know, in lead up we to have, that. We have a, a constructive gridlock for the moment. Um, quick word on the, on the record on the S&P as well. We buy into it then? Or do we uh, hold off now? We've come too far too fast. Um, look, I think that we have uh, not come too far. We may have come a little bit too fast. Uh, and again, the concentration within seven stocks, uh, which uh, again accounted for more than half of the return last year, uh, is an issue. But they also had 44% EPS growth last year. And it was probably even more than that when we see fourth quarter results. Uh, but I think, again, that more companies can have double-digit returns. Not that wow. they're going to have a 26% return like last year in the S&P, but if we had a high single-digit return, there can be many more companies by the end of this year looking ahead to a stronger profit outlook in 2025. Stephen, it's been brilliant having you on the My set pleasure. Today. Thank you so Thank much. You. And I know you've had a long trip as well. So a safe journey Thank when you, you eventually do get back to uh, New York, sir. Uh, Stephen Whiting, Chief Economist and Chief Investment Strategist at City Global Wealth. 
Uh, U.S. markets, as we just discussed, surged to a new record. But how long will the bull run last? We'll find out more on CNBC Pro online. Or you can scan the QR code. On your, oh, there it is. It is actually on our screen. There you go. Brilliant. Uh, you can scan that uh, at your leisure. Um, well, not at your leisure because it's gone. Uh, we are gearing up for a big thank you. There's your hand, Nick. Sorry. Don't, don't apologise. Do you want to see Nick? No, no, we don't want to see Nick. OK, right. Fair enough. Uh, cheers, Stephen. Thank you. Uh, we are gearing up for a big week for global markets. Tomorrow brings the uh, latest decision from the Bank of Japan with Governor Ueda's comments closely watched for signals on the bank's future policy path. And we're looking out for data on both sides of the Atlantic. Here in Europe, a slew of PMI readings Wednesday before attention turns stateside for the first estimate of fourth quarter GDP and the Fed's preferred PCE inflation gauge. All this as earnings season kicks into gear. Tomorrow brings the results from Netflix in the US and telco giant Ericsson in Europe. A Tesla, I can't help thinking that Tesla are going to be fascinating. Already been reading previews there. Plus the chip supplier, key chip supplier I should say. In fact they don't supply chips do they? Whoever wrote that, they supply equipment to make chips. There you go. Lithography machines, ASML, on Wednesday. <clears throat> and on Thursday we'll see the latest from luxury giant LVMH plus Juvodan with Visa and American Express offering another insight into U.S. consumer behavior on Thursday and Friday. And make sure to check out the ultimate U.S. earnings playbook with insight from uh, The Street and CNBC reporters. That is available now on our subscription service, CNBC Pro. Gosh, we're doing the big adverts today, aren't we? We certainly are, all of them. <laughs> now, coming up on the show, Ron DeSantis throws in the towel, dropping out of the Republican presidential race and endorsing one of his former rivals. We'll look at what it means then for the 2024 elections. Plus, the U.S. carries out more strikes against Houthi targets in Yemen as Red Sea tensions rise. We'll bring you the latest throughout today's show. And we'll look at the role tech companies can play in the green transition. With Cisco CFO Scott Heron. Don't miss that exclusive conversations at 9.30 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has suspended his presidential campaign and endorsed former President Donald Trump. The move follows a distant second-place finish in Iowa, ending a campaign which saw him fall short of initial lofty expectations. Now, his decision does come ahead of tomorrow's New Hampshire primary, where South Carolina uh, Governor Nikki Haley is hoping to challenge front-runner Trump, with DeSantis not competitive in statewide polls conducted before his decision to drop out. Now, DeSantis hit out at the at, at Haley, should I say, as he explained the decision to end his campaign. I can't ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources if we don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. I'm proud to have delivered on 100% of my promises, and I will not stop now. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. They watch his presidency get stymied by relentless resistance 
and they see Democrats using lawfare this day to attack him. Well, I've had disagreements with Donald Trump, such as on the coronavirus pandemic and his elevation of Anthony Fauci. Trump is superior to the current incumbent, Joe Biden. That is clear. I signed a pledge to support the Republican nominee, and I will honor that pledge. He has my endorsement because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackage formed of warmed over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. More analysis on this one. Thomas Gift, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the Center on U.S. Politics at UCL, joining us now. Thomas, good morning to you. Um, it, it, it's clear then he believes that there was no path to success on this one, particularly after New Hampshire, where uh, Ron DeSantis wasn't necessarily polling too well. How much of this move was ensuring that he actually had a political future post this election cycle? Well, it's great to be with you, Arabile. Thanks so much for having me. I, I think that that's certainly a big part of the decision. I think DeSantis still has aims on uh, getting uh, to the White House someday, probably 2028. And I think he thinks that his best chance right now is to jump on the bandwagon. And clearly the bandwagon is with uh, Trump. It's possible uh, because he uh, jumped out early uh, that he could be in a position for maybe a, a cabinet post. I'm thinking attorney general or something like that. But basically, uh, he didn't want to be on the wrong side of Trump, which most Republicans don't want to be on the wrong side of Trump. And what they're thinking about is the future of their political career. So, so DeSantis is no different on that front. Has to do a little bit, though, still to, to kind of endear himself back to the MAGA crowd, considering how much he's you know, had to say against Donald Trump in, in his running, right? You're right. And campaigns are always sort of like this. But, you know, the thing with um, politics is that wounds tend to heal pretty quickly and voters tend to have a relatively uh, short memory. And so, you know, there's going to be this process where uh, DeSantis is going to be trying to ingratiate himself with Trump. I already saw that uh, Trump said that he's retiring the phrase Ron DeSanctimonious, which, of course, uh, was sort of his nickname for uh, Ron DeSantis. And so you can see the two coming back together. So this is actually um, quite typical. Um, you know, you see the, the, the candidate sort of pivot, say nice things about uh, the front runner, and then sort of all is well, and they're one big happy family. So it's not perfect, but it's kind of the way that American politics tends to work. Tom, really lovely to see you again. I always uh, love listening to your thoughts. Look, I'm going to take a step back. There are a lot of Europeans, and I'm sure a vast number, in fact, a huge percentage of your students who just don't get what's going on, who can't quite understand why characters like DeSantis and Trump are right to the fore of US politics and right to the fore of the Republican Party. Just remind us Europeans why the Republican Party is drifting to Mr. Trump yet again, and he remains an iron grip at the moment, it seems, on the Republican Party. That's a great question, Steve. And, you know, DeSantis's campaign itself was premised on this idea that voters wanted Trumpism without Trump. In reality, uh, voters wanted Trumpism with Trump, or more specifically, uh, they just wanted Trump. I think that's the state of the Republican Party. So nothing DeSantis could have done would have changed that. DeSantis didn't run a perfect campaign, far from it. But for him to have won, I think all the political stars would have had to align, and he would have had to have been flawless. Instead, the 91 criminal indictments uh, against Donald Trump, plus 
the effort to kick him off the ballot in Maine and Colorado really guaranteed Trump all the momentum he needed. I think Trump's appeal among the right is so strong right now. You know, more than eight years after he walked down that golden escalator, the left still fails to fundamentally understand um, that appeal. Why is that appeal exist? You know, there are lots of different reasons, but I think the number one is just Trump does really uh, well at playing this uh, brand of grievance politics, basically saying, I'm the victim here. You know, the left is out to get me, the left is out to attack me. Oh, and by the way, just like they're out to get me and attack me, they're out to attack you and, and get you. And so we're all in this t together. Donald Trump has just been very effective at that brand of politics. It's Resonated, um, and particularly in post-industrialized towns that have been gutted by globalization and trade, been affected by demographic change, Donald Trump is really able to resonate with him. And I think that that's why, you know, eight years on from when he first uh, entered the political scene in a real way, uh, that appeal is still so strong. Thomas, we spent a lot of time talking about um, the age of President Biden, but uh, he's only a couple of years behind, is Mr. Trump as well. And he made some big mistakes over the last couple of days. Or do we just say that that was a, a man who's on the campaign trail, who's just basically got a lot on his plate, mixing up Nancy Pelosi and Nikki Haley? Or actually, is that something that's actually kind of going to have uh, become a bigger story, so to speak? Well, I think it becomes a bigger story if we see more and more gaffes like that. Um, and, you know, Nikki Haley really jumped on that and she's been using that as part of her key uh campaign platform in, in New Hampshire right now. I still think, you know, just uh, subjectively um, that Biden just looks out of it in a way that Donald Trump uh, doesn't, or Donald Trump just seems to have more energy. He seems to have uh, more vigor. Um, you know, of course, the Biden administration is going to dispute that. But you're right, age-wise, there's not that big of a difference. I just think in the perception uh, of voters, uh, there is a sizable difference. And whether that sizable difference is real or it's just imagined, it, it's really become part of the narrative narrative and it's become self-fulfilling uh, for Joe Biden. So something definitely to, to keep a look at on. And if we do see some more uh, of these of these gaffes, then I do think that might be drawing some more equivalencies. But for right now, I think the age uh, question is still um, against Biden. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho weekdays on CNBC.